This is the American Tapestry Project, where we seek to weave America's many stories into a tapestry of American possibilities. Welcome back, fellow weavers, and if this is your first time, welcome. Welcome to the American Tapestry Project. I'm Andrew Roth, a scholar in residence at the Jefferson Educational Society in Erie, Pennsylvania. Well, fellow weavers, if you ever doubted the American Tapestry Project's relevance, events of the past month should have convinced you that, well, we're on to something. In fact, the white supremacist massacre of peaceable black people going about their business, grocery shopping, at a Topps market in Buffalo, or a Texas teenager not old enough to buy beer but more than qualified under our bizarre gun laws or lack of gun laws, more than qualified to buy an assault weapon massacring a classroom full of fourth graders and two of their teachers, or the Supreme Court's recent reversal of multiple decisions of long-standing, most notably Roe v. Wade and Justice Clarence Thomas's remarks about contraception and gay rights the next to go, or SCOTUS's New York gun law case. Well, it's been a grim month for the American Tapestry's fusion thread and an American story of ever-increasing inclusiveness. In double fact, the month's events have caused me to rethink several of the American Tapestry's key assumptions, to rethink its warp and woof, if you will, and begin to recognize that among the American Tapestry's many threads, its meta-threads, its major stories are two stories. If not in diametrical opposition, then two stories that are in very, very, very serious competition with one another. As we look closer, we'll discover that they've been in competition with one another since the beginning of American history from whatever date you want to say that history began. One is a story of exclusion, one a story of inclusion. Today we'll examine those meta-threads, how their meaning and implication points in the direction of how seeking to understand what they mean for our mutual American future will be the subject of several episodes going forward. I call them the seeds of our discontents. Of course, that was our The American Tapestry Project's theme. Many listeners have asked what it is, who wrote it, and can they get a copy. It's from Antonin Dvorak's String Quartet No. 12. Later today, we'll learn a bit about Dvorak, about his Czech origins, his move to America, his experience in Spillville, Iowa, where String Quartet No. 12 was composed, and then, at listener request, we'll, we'll hear the American's entire first movement. As always, signals a special topic, a sidebar we'll explore. Today there are three. First that sidebar about Antonin Dvorak I mentioned a moment ago, and then two more. We'll meet, actually reacquaint ourselves with Erie's own Harry Burley. We met him in episode 14, which of course you can find on WQLN's website and other podcast sites. Today, Today we'll recall that Burley was a student of Dvorak's and that it was Dvorak who inspired Burley to document America's great African-American musical tradition. We'll hear several takes, including Burley himself, 
of Burley's transcription of Go Down Moses with its achingly classical line, Let My People Go. Finally, we'll have a brief introduction to Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, once America's most popular poet. There is or was an Erie Elementary School named after him, but now Longfellow is somewhat neglected. That's a shame, for Longfellow is worth a listen. As a sort of preview of next month's edition of the American Tapestry Project, Patriotic Poetry, in which we'll hear how the great American poets have expressed their open-eyed love of country, we'll learn the background to Longfellow's Paul Revere's Ride, a comment or two on its historical accuracy or not, and then listen to its famous opening, an opening almost every schoolchild once knew. That's today on the American Tapestry Project. As I said, events of the past six weeks have raised a blizzard of questions about the American Tapestry Project, a blizzard of questions about the trajectory of American society. I mean, what is one to make of a society that can't, won't, protect its children? What is one to make of a society that harbors people like the oleogenously vile politician who, when asked by a British correspondent why the United States seems so prone to mass shootings, yet another of which happened on July 4th in a Chicago suburb, while that politician smiled his smarmy smile, patted the inquirer on the shoulder, and walked away. Or what is one to make of the posturing populists, graduates of Harvard, Stanford, Yale, and other elite institutions, children of privilege inveighing against elites as if they were a masochist deriving pleasure from their own pain? What is one to make of a society in which, as Richard Hofstadter opined in his The Paranoid Style in American Politics, paranoia seems to be, whether on the right or left, America's default political setting, which might actually be the sane response to a society that at times seems to challenge, seems to challenge common sense notions of the common wheel. For as Andy Grove, founder of Intel, the computer chip manufacturer, Andy Grove said when titling his autobiography, only the paranoid survive. What is one to make of a society which, in its first 227 years, failed only once to peacefully transfer power from one presidential administration to the next, but in the past five years in two presidential elections has seen, first in 2017, a slew of books from the camp of the defeated riffing off Sinclair Lewis's It Can't Happen Here, warning that it could happen here, analyzing how democracies die, giving George Orwell's 1984 yet another moment atop the bestseller list, and poring over Madeleine Albright's Fascism, A Warning. Or, in 2021, the spectacle of a defeated incumbent president spouting lies about a stolen election egging on a crowd to storm the Capitol building, apparently complicit in an aborted coup attempt, as evidence in congressional hearings about January 6th continues to pile up, and, on a comparatively trivial note, for only the fourth time in American history, not attending his successor's inauguration, all the while whining, stop the steal. In 2017, the sanguine said the paranoid spasm would pass. Five years later, their sanguinity seems less reassuring as figures on the right, 
including that former president of the United States, mutter that civil war might be necessary to save the country, while white supremacists shoot up supermarkets and deranged teenagers who can't legally buy a beer, buy assault rifles, and massacre fourth graders. What is one to make of such a society? How did we get to now? How did we get to a now in which, for the first time in American history, a right granted to the American people has been revoked and other rights threatened? I speak, of course, about the Dobbs decision revoking Roe v. Wade and Justice Thomas's direct threats that contraception and gay rights are next. How did we get to now? Dialing down the paranoia, regardless of your political persuasion, witnessing the recent primary elections in Ohio, Pennsylvania, and elsewhere, it's hard to argue that American politics doesn't seethe, doesn't seethe with culture wars. It's culture wars all the time. Elections no longer hinge on specific policy proposals regarding the economy, infrastructure, taxation, etc., but instead focus on socially fraught arguments about core values. On the Republican side, we see candidates running on platforms of faith, family, and freedom. In Ohio and Pennsylvania, senatorial candidates, J.D. Vance, Dr. Oz, and Kathy Barnett, well, they're all trying to out-mago one another. On the Democratic side, candidates trying to talk policies and programs need to pivot to individual rights to be heard amidst the emotional noise clouding our current divide. Why the divergence? How did American politics become a seemingly endless argument about core values? As we'll see, one can argue that it always has been like this. Recently, during a conversation in Washington, D.C. with a retired high government official who had an official who had spent decades in service to the U.S. Senate, the official observed, somewhat dispiritedly, but with a vague note of hope, well, that official observed, we've been here before and we've survived. His example, however, was not exactly encouraging. He noted that in 1858, arch-abolitionist Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner was attacked by a representative from South Carolina on the floor of the Senate. Sumner was beaten bloody and near comatose. Sumner survived to see in 1865 the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution banning slavery enacted. Of course, in the interim, the United States fought a civil war in which approximately 620,000 Americans died, died in the line of duty, roughly 2% of the population. To put that in perspective, today that 2% represents about 6 million people. And, God forbid, but if it happened, if it happened that we had another civil war, it would be uglier, far uglier than the 19th century's bloody civil war, which was actually a war between two, two more or less unified geographical entities, one of which refused to acknowledge the other's sovereignty. It was fought in fairly well-defined geographic space. The next civil war, if, again, God forbid, one should occur, it is both bizarre, I can't even tell you how it is both bizarre and deeply unsettling to even mention that possibility, but if such a possibility should occur, well, a 21st century civil war would be far uglier because it would be like, well, it would be like the Balkans in the 1990s or the Spanish Civil War, neighbor against neighbor, family member against family member. So, yes, we've been here before and survived, but 
barely and at a terrible cost. That cost might still be being paid, for it can be plausibly argued that our current travail surrounding racial relations and arguments about states' rights, well, those are issues, those are issues those 620,000 19th century American deaths failed to resolve. Thoughts of incipient civil war aside, since the 1960s, those arguments have grown increasingly intense until we are now approaching a cusp moment, a moment that might well determine whether or not the American experiment ends permanently or fractures into competing regions, red and blue states, or red and blue regions within states, within states of either hue, vying with one another. How did we get to this fractious now? What can we do to avoid that calamitous future? I'll be exploring that question on July 20th at 4 p.m. on the Jefferson Society's Facebook page during a live stream conversation with Phil Payne of St. Bonaventure University and Jefferson Society Vice President Ben Spagan in a program we call The Seeds of Our Discontents. It might or might not be the first of a series exploring that critical question. How did we get to now? And how can we ensure a peaceful and better American future? As you fellow weavers know, for some six years I've been researching that question. I began thinking about the American story, whether there was such a thing, and what it might be. My naive assumption was that if Americans could only get their story straight, then they could live together in that domestic tranquility the U.S. Constitution's preamble says it was established to ensure. Beginning with a look at the 1960s in a series I entitled The Far Side of the Moon and the Birth of the Culture Wars, America in 1968, then, for the past several years, the American Tapestry Project and its spin-off American Holidays, I have explored the shifting nature of American society and its politics. The naivete in my assumptions spun two threads. One, that there was a story, and two, that getting the story straight involved simply discovering the key facts, the key objects about which Americans agreed, whether they were as profound as those truths we espouse about liberty, equality, and opportunity, or as banal as a common passion for football, barbecue, and Santa Claus, the ruddy-cheeked version of which is an American invention. Alas, if it were only that simple. During these six years, I discovered there is not one American story, but many American stories that, even when woven metaphorically into a tapestry of American stories, do not tell a single unified story accepted by all Americans. And that, as has been said, is a problem. For as Joan Didion said, and all you weavers know, we tell ourselves stories to make sense of our experience. The sense-making, the meaning a society's stories reveal, creates that society's culture. For stories create culture and not the other way around. Actually, it's more complicated than that. For stories and the cultures they create interact in a helical fashion. Stories are a culture's DNA. Like a strand of DNA's double helix, social experiences and the stories seeking the sense, the meaning of those experiences, intertwine in a complex dance creating a people's culture. A culture, as we know, binds a people together around a shared set of values, attitudes, and beliefs. 
Since the 1960s, Americans have increasingly realized that perhaps, perhaps they no longer share a common understanding of their supposedly shared values, attitudes, and beliefs. They have begun to believe that they no longer share a common understanding of the American story, that they no longer share a common vision for America's future. When I asked a thoughtful, conservative friend of mine why people were so angry, he replied, because they think they're losing their culture. When that happens, when people begin to think they are losing their culture, it means those delicate strands of intertwining stories are fragmenting and breaking. When they do, the shared culture they created begins to unravel. One symptom of that unraveling is our increasingly frequent arguments about stories, about narratives, to use a fancier term, about what and whose stories tell the story of America, and whose story tells the story about what America means. It's what, for example, the history wars are all about. It's what the debate about critical race theory is all about. It's what, in a certain sense, it's what the abortion debate is all about which it is becoming increasingly clear is really the most recent turning in the strand of stories seeking the sense of women's experience, seeking to understand and to define women's role in American society. It's an argument about what America means, what it means to be an American, and who gets to be an American. And, most importantly, it's an argument about who gets to tell the story, the stories answering all of those questions. This argument, in many ways, is as old as America itself. In fact, it might even predate the creation in 1789 of the American political state. There are many threads, many stories in the tapestry of American stories, but I now realize there are two meta-threads, two meta-threads, if you will, in the tapestry of American stories. Well, in some ways, they are the obverse and reverse of the same story, they also conflict with one another in core, foundational, fundamental ways. For they tell the story of two Americas, two Americas with very different visions for the future, with very different understandings about what America means. What are these two stories, these two meta-threads in the American tapestry? First, Let's define some terms. In philosophy, essentialism is the idea that things have basic characteristics that make them what they are, and that these characteristics cannot be changed. A thing is what it is, what it was in the beginning is now and ever shall be. Essence precedes existence. It cannot change. It is incapable of evolving or adapting to changing conditions. Judicial originalist with their mangled knowledge of history, are, in a certain sense, wannabe essentialist. But they can't be, because they got their facts wrong. But that's another story. When simplistically applied to a culture, essentialism, originalism, suggests that the culture is frozen in place, that it is frozen in time. It is what it is. It can become no more. Unable to adapt, it lingers on in a static condition, gradually withering until it dies. 
a process, to be sure, that can take a very, very, very long time. So long a time, it can, for some, provide a sense of security. Existentialism, on the other hand, emphasizes the existence of the individual person as a free and responsible agent determining their own development. You'd think libertarians would get that. Some do, some don't, but that is also yet another story. More important for our purposes, existentialism means that an individual or a society is in a constant state of becoming, evolving from its essence to adapt to changing circumstances so that it can not only survive, but flourish. True to its origins, true to its essence, which is only a beginning, a point of departure, it grows and matures, widens and deepens in response to a changing world seeking in its fullness to be, as in the old army ad, all it can be. For our purposes, and admittedly risking oversimplification, the essentialist American story says that this is what America is, that it is unchanging. It is a story that looks to the past. The existential American story says that America is the story of two key subthreads that constantly renew, redefine, and adapt to the ever-changing, to the ever-shifting shape and contour of the American reality. It is a story that looks to the future, seeking that more perfect union of which the U.S. Constitution speaks. Let me be more specific. First, however, I'm going to pivot on words. Existential might be off-putting for some, but America is an existential society, a protean society that growing and maturing from its brilliant founding, growing and maturing in an ever-increasing enjoyment of the reality, the potential, the future-making nature of freedom. So, since protean means able to change frequently to meet changing conditions, since protean means able to do many different things, since protean means versatile and able to adapt and flourish in multiple settings, I am going to call the existential American story the protean American story. The protean American story, the story that sees America as an ongoing experiment in human freedom and liberty, is the story of two intertwined threads. One is the story of self-government, of government of, by, and for the people, of a people's attempt to prove that humans can govern themselves. In the Federalist Papers number one, it is what Alexander Hamilton referred to when he said, the American experiment would prove or not whether societies of men are really capable or not of establishing good government from reflection and choice, or whether they are forever destined to depend for their political constitutions on accident and force. It is what Abraham Lincoln said was the last best hope of Earth. The Protean story's second thread is the story of the we in We the People. It is the story of the ever-increasing inclusiveness of that we, as Americans attempt the exceedingly difficult challenge of governing themselves while constantly redefining themselves, redefining the we at the heart of the American experiment. It has evolved from 1790's Naturalization Act, which limited American citizenship to free white persons, 
to the post-1965 Immigration Act's reopening of America to people of virtually every hue and ethnicity in the world, to the post-1960s extension of the full benefits of freedom to all Americans, women, people of color, and the indigenous people. So the Protean story, the Protean story is the ongoing story of Americans' experiment in self-government, all the while welcoming the peoples of the world to come to America. It's an inclusionary story. Not everyone thinks that is a good idea. The other meta-thread, the essentialist story, is an exclusionary story. It is a story of government by the few, for the few, and the exclusion of all others. Where the inclusionary story is democratic, small d, the exclusionary story is oligarchic. Where the inclusionary story seeks to increase the meaning of the we in we the people, the exclusionary story seeks to restrict membership to those who look, think, and act like them. It reserves America only for a subset of its people. At its most extreme, it is white, Christian, patriarchal, ethno-nationalism, sometimes called dominionism. More subtly, it shades the white, for it is possible to be an honorary white if one accepts its other tenets. At its most benign, the essentialist story seeks to reestablish what it identifies as traditional institutions and traditional values, by which it means traditional gender roles, nuclear families, a deregulated market economy, and a bleached-out, judgmental Christianity based more on the Book of Revelation and less on the Sermon on the Mount. Its adherents want to freeze-frame America in some older, father-knows-best version of an America that never was. They want to make America great again by returning to some mythical past when everyone, when everyone resembled them, thought like them, and acted like them. That that world never existed troubles them deeply, for why else would they not want history taught? These two stories are admittedly pole points, and each is easily caricatured. There are many intermediate shades, but they never quite mesh in the middle. In fact, the absence of a middle where these two stories can coexist is what is meant by people of both the right and the left who endlessly quote Yeats's The Center Cannot Hold. While they never quite meet, these two stories share many threads in common. Sometimes, adherents of one uses the values of the other to justify its position. At other times, they deny the other's very legitimacy, the legitimacy of their claims to be included in the American story. Regardless of what date you care to say America began, these two meta-threads, these two meta-stories, plotlines, and themes have defined American culture, American political culture, from the very beginning. At times, one is predominated, at others, the other. But the strain and competition between these two competing visions of America, well, that competition in many ways is the story of America. So, with that admittedly very general background in mind, how did we get to now? To a 2022 when American politics, American culture, seems incurably polarized, when leaders cannot even speak coherently about the massacre of innocence, how did we get to a 2022 polarized by these two visions of America openly confronting one another? And mark it as a certainty, what we have been seeing for several decades now 
is these two stories competing for dominance in American culture, of these two stories competing to be the American story. The events of the past six weeks or so have brought it all out into the open. The essentialist story wants women, minorities, gays, and others all back in their place. The protean story wants all Americans to share in American freedom so that together we can indeed make America great again. Still, how did we get to here? How did we get to now? Well, it goes back to the beginning, but in almost any serious and many not-so-serious conversations, you'll hear the essentialists say it all went wrong in the 1960s. Smithsonian Magazine said 1968 was the year America shattered. So, using 1968 as a hinge year, what, to paraphrase a song from that era, if the times were a-changing, what changed in 1968? We'll explore that question in some depth in future episodes, and as I mentioned earlier, you can listen in on July 20th to the Jefferson Educational Society live stream of a new series called The Seeds of Our Discontents. It's a lot, but, well, fellow weavers, we'll wend our way through it. But for today, let's take a breather from our fractious times to answer some listener questions and particularly a listener, actually several listener questions about the American Tapestry Project's theme music. Who was Antonin Dvorak? As some notes at Classic FM detail, Dvorak is, was, a Czech composer. He was born in 1841 in a small village north of Prague. The eldest of 14 children, his father was a professional zither player, an innkeeper, and a butcher. Apprenticed as a butcher to his father, Antonin also joined his father in the local band. He particularly loved Czech music, Czech folk music. Although apprenticed as a butcher, he gave that up to study organ, violin, and piano. In addition to playing viola in the Bohemian Provisional Theater Orchestra, he also played in bands, at dances, and in restaurants. After resigning from the orchestra in 1871 to become a composer, Dvorak patched together a living by teaching piano. Married in 1873, Dvorak and his wife, Anna, had nine children, but only six survived infancy. The struggling composer finally attracted the notice of Johannes Brahms. On Brahms' recommendation, Dvorak wrote some Slavonic dances aimed at the current popular market. They sold out in eight days. He was on his way. After a successful career in his native Bohemia and England, Dvorak accepted a lucrative contract to come to the New World, to come to New York City. It was more than lucrative. It was an incredible fee. For teaching and conducting, he was paid $15,000, 25 times what he was paid in Prague, and about $500,000 to $600,000 in modern money. Well, in America, he produced three great works, his Symphony No. 9, From the New World, his String Quartet, The American, his String Quartet No. 12, The American, and a cello concerto. In America, Dvorak longed for home. He even spent his summers in a small Czech community in Iowa. It was there, it was there that he wrote String Quartet No. 12. Dvorak died at the age of 62 from a stroke on May 1, 1904. 
1943, to honor Dvorak, the U.S. Navy named an American Liberty ship, the United States Navy ship Antonin Dvorak. According to the Dvorak website in the Czech Republic, from which the following remarks are drawn, as I just said, Dvorak wrote String Quartet No. 12 in the small Czech community of Spillville, Iowa, where he spent his summers vacationing from the New York Conservatory. Spillville reminded him of his summer residence in Bohemia. He wrote, in a letter to a friend, I have been on vacation in the Czech village of Spillville. I am working hard and I'm healthy and in good spirits. These days of contentment and family harmony and the hospitality of the locals gave rise to an exceptionally joyful piece of music. The entire sketch for the quartet emerged within an astonishingly short period of time, a mere 72 hours in fact, and the whole score was finished within 12 days. On the last page of the sketch, Dvorak noted, Thank God, I am pleased. It all went so quickly. The premiere of the quartet was given in Boston on New Year's Day, 1894. The string quartet in F major is known as the American, not only since it appeared on the American continent, but also for the fact that it contains a number of elements typical of original African-American and Native American music. As Dvorak himself said, When I wrote this quartet in the Czech community of Spillville in 1893, I wanted to write something for once that was very melodious and straightforward. And, dear Papa Haydn, kept appearing before my eyes, and that is why it all turned out so simply. And it's good that it did. As his website declares, every bar of the quartet is a triumph of Dvorak's astonishing melodic vision, his pure musicianship, and disarming immediacy. For these qualities, it is one of the most frequently performed chamber works in the world repertoire. Of course, as we've said, and as you know, the Dvorak String Quartet Number no. 12, the American, is the theme, or at least excerpts from it are the theme of the American Tapestry Project. The following version of the first movement of Dvorak's String Quartet Number no. 12 is from the open-source free music website, MuseOpen. As they say on their website, they, and I quote them, MuseOpen provides recordings, sheet music, and textbooks to the public for free without copyright restrictions. But simply, our mission is to set music free. In that spirit, from Muse Open, here is the first movement of Dvorak's String Quartet Number no. 12, performed by the Muse Open String Quartet from the album Muse Open Kickstarter Project. <laughs> Thank you. 
Well, that second bell indicates a second question. Who was Harry Burley? 
As we learned in episode number 14 that aired in September 2021, Burley, a major figure in the history of American music, after whom the Erie School District's Pfeiffer Burley School is named, Harry Burley was born in Erie on December 2, 1866. His parents were freeborn people of color. Burley's maternal grandfather, who had been born a slave, was Erie's lamplighter. He taught the spirituals He taught the spirituals to his grandson as they made their nightly rounds, lighting Erie's gaslights, singing as they went. After singing in local Erie churches, in 1892, Burley won a scholarship to the National Conservatory of Music in New York, at that time headed by none other than Antonin Dvorak. Dvorak exhorted Burley and other students to go forth and create a national school of music. Burley did. At Dvorak's urging, he began to collect, to write down, and in 1911, to publish his ancestors' traditional songs. His 1916 Jubilee Songs of the United States became these traditional songs' standard recital form used by solo singers and choirs, such as the Fisk Jubilee Singers. As noted at the website, Song of America, Burley was a pathfinder whose work broke down color barriers, opening up access to all forms of American music to all people. Burley brought the spirituals out of their plantation and minstrel settings, paving the way for artists like Roland Hayes, Paul Robeson, and Marian Anderson. A great singer and concert performer himself, Harry T. Burley died on September 12, 1949. Let's listen to three versions of this student of Dvorak. Let's listen to three versions of Burley's transcription of the classic African-American spiritual, Go Down Moses. First, we'll hear an excerpt from a recording of Burley himself singing, Go Down Moses. Among the most famous choral versions is the Fisk Jubilee Singers version. The Fisk Jubilee Singers are vocal artists and students at Fisk University in Nashville, Tennessee. They sing and travel worldwide. Fisk University is an HBCU and historically black college and university. Among its alumni are some of the most famous African Americans in American history. In fact, let's drop the modifier. Among its alumni are some of the most famous Americans in American history. W.E.B. Du Bois, the poet Nicky Giovanni, the great historian John Hope Franklin, the legendary fighter against lynching Ida B. Wells, and the great civil rights activist and United States representative John Lewis. 
As the Fisk website says, the original Fisk Jubilee singers introduced slave songs to the world in 1871 and were instrumental in preserving this unique American musical tradition known today as Negro spirituals. They broke racial barriers in the U.S. and abroad and in the late 19th century entertained kings and queens in Europe. At the same time, they raised money in support of their beloved school. Here, here is an excerpt from the Fisk Jubilee Singers version of Go Down, Moses. It might not be fair to Burley and the Fisk Jubilee Singers with their high art, high church rendition to compare them to Louis Armstrong, but here Armstrong and the Cy Oliver Singers offer a more up-tempo version of Go Down Moses. Armstrong, of course, was one of the creators of the great American jazz tradition. Cy Oliver was an American jazz arranger, trumpeter, composer, singer, and band leader. Among his great hits are Sentimental Sigh, 77 Sunset Strip, and a 1952 Decca record he did with Armstrong, Satchmo Serenades. Here is Louis Armstrong and the Cy Oliver Singers, their version of Go Down Moses. episode, we'll look more deeply into Harry Burley's legacy, and of course, in many future episodes, we're going to look into America's two major stories, the two meta-threads in the American tapestry story, the essentialist story, the reductionist version, and we'll look into the protean story, the story of inclusion and growth, the looking to the future. 
Next month on The American Tapestry Project, we'll hear what the poets have had to say about the American experience as we explore patriotic poetry. Patriotism, what is it? Who owns it? No one owns patriotism. An open-eyed love of country belongs to all Americans. But it can easily slide into a mindless nationalism that says, my country, love it or leave it. Next time on The American Tapestry Project, we'll hear what some of America's greatest poets had to say about patriotism. From Longfellow's Paul Revere's Ride to a selection of open-eyed love of country as poets tell the American story. For a taste of that, and to take you back to middle school or maybe junior high school English classes, here is a reading of Paul Revere's Ride. Who was Henry Wadsworth Longfellow? Once, among the most famous and popular of American poets, Longfellow has now fallen out of fashion. Regardless, his long narrative poems, The Song of Hiawatha, Paul Revere's Ride, From His Tales of a Wayside Inn, modeled roughly after Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, Longfellow's The Marriage of Miles Standish, well, all of these poems created the bedrock of America's shared cultural heritage. Longfellow was the most popular poet of the 19th century, a century in which poets, in which poets were the age's rock stars. Longfellow, Longfellow was a rock star. A fan of Sir Walter Scott's romances, Think Ivanhoe, and Washington Irving's sketchbook, Longfellow began to publish while still in college. In 1835, he accepted a professorship from Harvard, where he remained for the rest of his life. He began to write and publish poetry. In 1842, his ballads and other poems, containing such favorites as The Wreck of the Hesperus and The Village Blacksmith, swept the nation. He also published anti-slavery poetry in his collection, Poems on Slavery. But Longfellow, Longfellow was a storyteller, and the story he wanted to tell was the story of America. His first success was 1847's Evangeline. A sentimental tale, it tells of two lovers, Evangeline and Gabriel, separated when the dastardly British expelled the Acadians from what is now Nova Scotia, but was once called Acadia. It was the dispersal of the French that landed many in New England and, of course, New Orleans. The lovers are only reunited years later as Gabriel lies dying. Longfellow left teaching in 1854 to pursue a full-time career as a poet. As I said, he became a rock star of 19th century American poetry. His first big hit, if you will, was the Song of Hiawatha. It was immensely popular. It made Hiawatha and the image of the noble savage part of the century's cultural wallpaper. Hiawatha is an Ojibwa Native American who, after various mythic feats, becomes his people's leader and marries Minnehaha before departing for the Isles of the Blessed. Longfellow's next great success was The Courtship of Miles Standish. Set in the year 1621 in the Plymouth Colony, with a fierce Indian war as its background, the poem focuses on the love triangle of Miles Standish, Priscilla Mullins, and John Alden. Bumbling, feuding roommates, Miles Standish and John Alden vie for the affections of the beautiful Priscilla. The independent-minded woman utters the famous retort, Why don't you speak for yourself, John? 1863's Tales of a Wayside Inn demonstrates, demonstrates Longfellow's narrative gift. Its Paul Revere's ride became a national hit. As every schoolchild knows, it tells of the midnight ride of Paul Revere to warn the colonists 
to warn the colonists that the British are coming, the British are coming. Told by the tavern keeper of the Wayside Inn, Paul Revere's ride created an American legend. Although not completely accurate, there really was a Paul Revere. He really did warn the countryside of the British incursion. There was also another rider named Dawes, but Longfellow left him out. Too bad for Dawes. Maybe, maybe in a future episode, we'll tell the accurate story of the Midnight Ride. But for now, who has not heard the line, one if by land, two if by sea, without really understanding what it means? Here is a marvelous recital of the poem by Jim Clark, recreating Longfellow telling the tale of Paul Revere. Where else? You can find it on YouTube. Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere on the 18th of April in 75. Hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year. He said to his friend, If the British march by land or sea from the town tonight, hang a lantern aloft in the belfry arch of the North Church Tower as a signal light. One if by land, and two if by sea, and I on the opposite shore will be ready to ride and spread the alarm through every Middlesex village and farm for the country folk to be up and to arm. Then he said, Good night, and with muffled oar silently rowed to the Charlestown shore. Just as the moon rose over the bay, where swinging wide at her moorings lay the Somerset, British man-of-war, a phantom ship with each mast and spar across the moon like a prison bar, and a huge black hulk that was magnified by its own reflection in the tide. Next month on the American Tapestry Project, patriotic poetry. The American Tapestry, rich in its many threads and stories, challenging 21st century Americans to remember our ideals and to live up to, to live up to the better angels of our natures. I'm Andrew Roth, scholar in residence at the Jefferson Educational Society in Erie, Pennsylvania. Thank you for listening. Past episodes can be found on the WQLN website, NPR One, Spotify, Google, and other podcast sites. Comments and questions can be sent to me at roth at jeserie.org. Thank you.